Hello, everybody out there. This is Stevie Mata coming from you live at 12 Mile Limit. This is Around with Stephen Cole. I'm joined with my co-host, Cole Newton. Hi, everybody. This is T. Cole Newton, owner and proprietor of this own bar. <laughs> my own bar here, 12 Mile Limit. Steve is a liar, though. We are coming pre-recorded from oh, 12 Mile Limit. This it's is live at this moment, I it, guess. We are alive right now and saying these words. Most definitely. Yeah, you'll have to excuse us. This is our first uh, go at all of this. We've been talking about this for uh, a couple months, I think, at some point. This has been an idea I've been kicking around for a while, but I'm glad we finally pulled the trigger on it. Yeah, Steve and I did a couple of radio appearances probably over a year ago at this point. Uh, with a friend who was filling in for a local radio host and had us both on. And we both had a lot of fun and got a lot of positive feedback on our appearance and thought, hey, if they can do it, we can do it. Let's start, uh, let's start a little show. Yeah, right on. I, I won't lie either. I mean, part of this, too, is I do like to hear the sound of my own voice a little bit. I mean, I think most bartenders feel the same way a little bit. I love your voice. Oh. I hate the sound of my own voice when it's recording. I think I sound like an asshole, actually. I think I sound like a pretentious dick. Yeah. But it sounds really good in my own head, and hopefully it sounds nice to you, too. It's there. a great reading voice, and we've, we've seen that over the holiday season. <laughs> it's, uh, it's curl up by the fireside, listen to Cole. Listen yeah, to Cole if you're interested, there is a YouTube video that I recently posted of me reading a young adventure romance choose-your-own-adventure novel in its entirety from start to finish. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's quite quite the listener view or something like that. also you can just put it on in the background without sound and it makes a charming yule log on those cool winter nights <laughs> right on so uh before we get too off topic let's go ahead and just jump into the crux of the matter so uh this podcast that uh me and uh t cole here are starting off is basically going to focus on what it's like to be a new orleans bartender um the scene has developed drastically in the last couple of years uh, by leaps and bounds we've seen uh different trends uh manifest in the city we've seen lots of people move into town move out of town bars open bars closed restaurants it's a really crazy time in new orleans as far as the industry goes yeah you would have thought that there would be some we would be close to a saturation point we i think have more bars per capita than almost any other city in the country and the fact that more and more continue to open and stay open it's not that we are seeing bars come and go rapidly. Even the bars that don't last, last for longer than I think they might in other markets because we're such a drinking community, because it's so ingrained in the culture here that there's really, it's a way of life in a way that it isn't in most other places. Yeah, I completely agree with that as well. Um, it's interesting you say that as well, for bars staying open, even if it's you know not the best concept, not the best run establishment, it's really crazy the lifespan that a restaurant or a bar can have here in New Orleans. Uh, there's places that, you know, you can see that maybe it's not the best run operation in the world. Like, I think we both have enough experience in the industry to see. It's like, okay, well, you know, like, this price point isn't right. This concept isn't right for this neighborhood. Um, I think we have a pretty good idea of, like, what local perception and desire is in the marketplace. And you'll see restaurants and bars pop up, and they'll stick around for, like, three or four or five years. When I think in, in comparison to other markets, if you were to look at like New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle, any any other major market that's kind of going through similar real estate fluctuations, um, yeah, places go out much quicker. I think part of the reason here is that even though real estate prices have been ticking upwards pretty regularly for the last ten years since the storm, we haven't. We're still so much cheaper than many of those other cities. So we're never. I mean. It is going to take a long time before we even come close to prices 
in places like New York or San Francisco or even Chicago, which is relatively affordable for the size of the city it is. The barriers to entry in that way are m much lower in New Orleans and the barriers to staying open as a, as a corollary are much lower in New Orleans. Right, right. Uh, that's a uh, that's that's a really good point. Um, I I think one of the things that I I, I constantly have a tro uh, trouble wrapping my head around as far as um, comparing ourselves to larger markets as well too is when you look at a a city like Chicago for example, which I'm more familiar with than most other major American cities. Uh, you've got such a large population there in comparison to the population of New Orleans, like the per capita that we're talking about with bars to, to restaurants as well. It, it's crazy. And we all talk about the saturation point, whereas we have so many consumers, there's so much of a piece of the pie and everything. Um, you know, how does that work? Do you think like, you know, like with patrons and things like that, how do you attract business to these places and stay successful? For me, I, I mean, I can't speak to anyone other's models for success, but I think part of it is the, the hospitality of, the, of New Orleans generally, but Southern hospitality. That people talk about the hospitality industry. People talk about how they're, they're really trying to sort of model what comes instinctually to people in the South and other parts of the country. People are trying to figure out how to do what we just do automatically, which is be nice, be welcoming, be accommodating, being kind and patient with your, with your guests. And I think that is a big part of why places here can attract and retain a loyal following, even if the concept is kind of wonky or if it's not necessarily a great fit for the neighborhood yet. A lot of places move in sort of in anticipation of the neighborhood catching up with their concept, which I think is kind of a dodgy proposition a lot of right. the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, there's a lot of prospecting in New Orleans right now. The the broad corridor, O.C. Haley. like Yeah. No, I, it's both of those, I think. Are, are, I mean, people have been talking about the O.C. Haley Corridor since I moved here 10 years ago as the next big thing. And now Broad is sort of the new next big thing. But both of them are just on the cusp. They're, they're one, like, really successful spot away from really being the new Ferret. Because that's what everyone wants to be right now is the new Ferret. Yeah, that's exactly. I think that's a model that everybody's trying to imitate with that as well. Um, how important do you think it was? To me, honestly, I think... Uh, being here before the storm and after the storm, Cure establishing on Ferret, I really feel that was the anchor on that entire street. I mean, the city going coming in and redistricting Ferret Street as an entertainment, um, I don't know what you call that, district or something like I think that. that but yeah. um, I think that was, uh, that was really important. And, you know, Cure was there more or less first, and they had to plug along for a while. And I'm not sure what their financials were like. I don't know if they were the most successful bar. But, um, you know, they just plugged away, and, and as they became more successful, the whole neighborhoods come up. Yeah, Cure was definitely foundational to that revitalization. They, it, was a, it was a very brave choice in a lot of ways to open there. And, yeah, the, the city sort of caught up with that in, in encouraging other businesses to follow suit. Uh, and uh, you can see other places that are trying to do the same model. I think Treo on Tulane thought, you know, that... The Cure could do that on, on Ferret. We can do that on Tulane. This is obviously a corridor that people use, the hospital going in down the street. Maybe the city's not there yet, but with all of the motels that were were seen as these borderline blighted properties that were hubs for uh, drug dealing and prostitution, not that I have anything against either of those philosophically, uh, but they tend to be associated with violent crime for variety of 
valid reasons. We don't need to go into that. Sociology. We'll leave that for, for a future show, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, we'll but but all, <laughs> almost all of those motels are now being being renovated and turned into those charming boutique motels that are popping up along similar corridors in other major cities. And it look, it's starting to look like Treo's that can could be that anchor for that neighborhood that it that it wants to be that that cure for Tulane. So I think they they're not only was cure innovative in bringing more businesses to Ferret Street, but inspiring other businesses to do similar models in other parts of town that were that are prospecting that are that are getting there ahead of the curve. Right on. So uh, as a small business owner in the industry, Cole, if you had to put your money, if you were a gambling man and you had to put your money down, which of these up and coming neighborhoods would you invest in? Which one do you think has the most chance of success? Do you think has the most opportunity and potential? Right now, I think I mean, I think there's definitely still room on Broad Street. But after the Whole Foods and now with the Broad Theater having opened, which is a godsend as somebody who both lives and works in Mm Mid-City, it's uh, just one of the most amazing spaces that's opened up in the mm-hmm. last few years. Um, no, unabashed plug. <laughs> we are <laughs> <Love> not you, <laughs> entirely pro- to full disclosure. Our longtime uh, Wednesday night trivia host, Michael Demang, is one of the managers of the Broad Theater, so we have a some personal connection there. But even if I didn't know anyone there, I would probably be there pretty much as often as I am. It's Still an, a great spot. Yeah, I try to go there as, as often as I can, both mm-hmm. to support it because I think it's an amazing. Uh, it's an, it's an important space. There, there, there aren't now that the canal theaters have moved away from the art house model that a lot of people went there for, and you know, it's that's economics. Do what do what works for you. But there was definitely a room there. The Zeitgeist is, I mean, they get a lot of important movies too, but it's not really a, a dedicated movie theater space in the same way. But I mean, my point is that after the Broad Theater having opened and after the Whole Foods having opened on Broad Street, I think it's almost a little late. For, to effectively prospect on Broad Street. The people are starting to realize that Broad Street is happening now, so the properties there are getting snatched up pretty quickly. For me, I think the next real uh, space that seems like a wide open, almost a wild west, like go and stake your claim and you'll just, you know, make it. Just make it, is probably Gentilly. I think it's, it's borderline cultural wasteland still. There's very little out there in terms of nightlife, but there are a lot of people who are being priced out of neighborhoods closer to downtown, closer to uptown. Even Central City is becoming, you know, like there's a creeping gentrification there and it's forcing people out to Gentilly. And a lot of people who would, be, would have been trying to buy in Mid-City that would have been trying to buy uptown, would have been trying to buy downtown, are buying in Gentilly. So the population there... I think is ready to have a, a local spot, and there just doesn't seem to be one yet. Anything really where people can go, and even Lakeview is getting with Mondo and similar sp- spaces over there. They've got a district now. Lakeview's now not a cultural dead zone in the same way it was five years ago, but Gentilly still is, despite looking more and more like Lakeview East. Yeah, most definitely. Harrison's a completely different street at this point too, with District Donuts being there. They've got the Broken Egg Cafe. It's not not places that I would say like, oh man, I really have to go to these places, but it has that anchor of some place where somebody can go shop, they can walk, they can, you know, there's marketplaces, there's ice cream shops. It, it feels like a neighborhood. It feels like a destination, and it feels like a resource for for that neighborhood and that community that's around there. I completely agree with Gentilly as well, and I mean, we're not alone in this prospect. I mean, I think I think anybody who's 
um, who has an inkling of wanting to open up a business, uh, they, they just are salivating right now to be like, I want to get into Gentilly. But nobody wants to be the first. You know, nobody wants to be that cure on Ferret Street and, you know, take that loss, take that chance and everything like that to be the first one out there. I want to be the first. I would I would love <laughs> right, to be the let's first. Let's do it. Let's, <laughs> let's go find a spot. Let's do if it If any right of now. you listening out there have several hundred thousand dollars, that's the problem. I mean, I, I, I wanted to be the first somewhere else, but I was sort of... I mean, I don't know if it was the first. I would say Pals is arguably the first sort of cocktail bar in Mid-City, but their their model is much more neighborhood dive. Cocktail is very secondary. You can get decent mixed drinks there, but they're not really a cocktail bar in the same way. We were very much, I think, in a lot of ways, the first real cocktail program in Mid-City, and I'm still heavily invested here. <laughs> There's it, in 12 Island, we've been open for about six years now, and we've come a long way, but it's still a very needy baby, and all of my personal finances are locked up here. So while I would love to be the first somewhere else also, being the first here, I'm still playing a little bit of catch The up. true intentions of this podcast are revealed. We're just looking for investors, people. Just, <laughs> yes. Uh, hey, give us your money. Great ideas, no money. <laughs> <laughs> That's the 12 Mile Limit way. <laughs> now I'm part of that way. All righty. Uh, not to change gears completely, I think we went on a tangent, but that was pretty nice for the most part. I mean, those are definitely topics and things that we like to talk about. Um, I mean... This, these are the interactions that us as bartenders have when we're sitting around after a shift uh, during small, slower times during shifts as well, is we, we like to talk about what's happening, what the future is like. I mean, we're not... I, there's a diminishing perception with the service industry that like it's it's this transient um you know uncaring quick money in between life kind of profession but more and more we're seeing people who are dedicated to it and they love hospitality and they love the craft of you know cooking food and making drinks and everything and people are choosing this as their lifestyle and uh learning how to cope with that and finding that work-life balance, that's something that's really important to us. So um, that is definitely something that I would like to continue like exploring. Yeah, I think one of the... My, my personal arc in this industry is very much... It reflects that. It uh, I... I w this was a fill-in job for me. When I first took a bartending job, it was a way to make ends meet in college. I came down to New Orleans after the storm to do AmeriCorps work and then was looking for more nonprofit work, but so was pretty much everyone else after the storm moved down here volunteered for a while decided they liked it and was looking for work with a nonprofit that could actually pay them money but nonprofits don't have any money <laughs> so i took a job as a bartender and that happened to be at commander's palace restaurant which if you're unfamiliar it's where uh, emerald lagasse uh became an established star of the culinary so world lagasse lagasse is, is it that how he pronounces it i don't know Emer Emerald. You, know, you know him by his first name, probably. Bam. 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 Mr. Bam. Uh, that's where he got a start. That's where Paul Prudhomme got a start. They're, uh, they're essentially, it's like going to grad school for, for service. They do a lot. There's a lot of opportunities for professional development. There are people who will work there their entire lives. And I realized for the first time that this was a respectable trade for respect. It wasn't just something that people did while they were waiting for their lives to start it then and, and also i had a knack for it you know i was much better bartender than i ever was community organizer <laughs> i'm just not organized enough for <laughs> lack of a better term uh but that was the first time i'd really been in an environment where people took this work very seriously and i realized that it could in fact be a career and not and that that wasn't sad it wasn't the the stereotype of a middle-aged single mom working at Denny's scraping to get by, that there were people who, if you took the job seriously, there was room for advancement. 
they had a lot of people on the management track and people who had been there basically their entire lives. They start as food runners, no experience required, but if you're dedicated and willing, you there's no barriers for educational background. You don't have to have a high school degree even to succeed in the service industry. If you're willing to hustle, if you're willing to dedicate a little bit to it, you can get a lot out of it. And that's not true for very many industries. There's so many barriers to entry for success in almost every other industry that just don't exist in the service industry. It's very democratic in that way. And that's one of the things that attracts me to it. And I think it's really important to real also in a grander sense, as an economy nationally, we're moving to a more service focused economy. Mm -hmm. And people need to be open to the idea that those jobs can be meaningful can be respectable that they're not just something that you can you, you you know it's not just working at a restaurant while you try to get a real job yeah most definitely um and there there definitely is that opportunity as well too i mean i think talking about the industry being a little more democratic and uh being almost a haven i think for a lot of people with open ideas at different stages in their lives as well i don't think that i would ever disparage anybody who is you know maybe working their way through high school or you know maybe somebody who you know, their passion isn't like, you know, I think we've all had that, you know, dishwasher who like, you know, has aspirations to do something bigger and better. It's like their passion isn't dishwashing. Maybe their passion isn't bartending. Maybe you've got that person who they know it's good money. They know there's some stability there, but they aspire to something more. I mean, that's true. I, I shouldn't pretend that you have to be lifetime dedicated to the industry in order to be good at it. A lot of the best people, a lot of the best bartenders I know are, in fact, just doing it to get through grad school or as a placeholder. That does not mean you're in any way disqualified from being a good waiter or a good cook or a good bartender. And honestly, one of the things I hire for here at 12 Mile Limit is that I, I want people who have other interests. I like, I like hiring grad students because they, can, they have something else that they care about, that they can talk about. And I like hiring people who are aspiring artists or people who are interested in some sort of community development work, the kind of thing that I moved down here to do. If, you, if your only interest is in the service industry, especially as a bartender, it's not necessarily the same for servers because people don't interact with their servers in the same way that they interact with bartenders. But for bartenders, you need to be able to have a conversation about something other than cocktails. If the only thing you care about is bartending and cocktails, you will bore, even in a cocktail bar, That's I mean, we're a neighborhood dive, so you'd really need to be able to converse about sports and politics and just the goings-on around the city. But even in a cocktail bar, a place for, to use Kieran as an example that's really dedicated to that first and foremost, if that's the only thing you can talk about with your guests, you're going to board most of, the, most of them to tears. Yeah, I think uh, people are going to need the impression we're sponsored by Cure eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, I'm waiting for the check. Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So, Cole, if you see a resume, somebody walks in, and let's say they have three years bartending at Bar X in like New York, or let's say they come from... Colorado or something like that, and they work at some really great bar, and all they have is cocktail bar tending experience. What is your perception? Is that somebody who jumps to the top of the list of hiring? Do they go to the bottom, or are they somewhere in the middle? Really, it's almost almost irrelevant to me if you're... That's not true. I, sh I, should, I should walk that back a little bit. There's a real advantage to hiring somebody who has received professional cocktail training in a cocktail-focused environment. You know, I don't want to have to teach everyone how to make a proper old-fashioned. I would like people to have considered a number of different old-fashioned recipes and have settled on one that they liked, and that's the one that they make. But if you haven't had the opportunity 
to make a bunch of old fashions in your life, then you won't be able to articulate why your preferred old fashioned is your preferred old fashioned. I don't want to have to train everyone up from scratch on cocktail bartending, but at the same time, I would prefer that people have a wider range of experience than just cocktail bars. A lot of cocktail bars around the country are based on a culture of exclusivity. Mm -hmm. And that just, that doesn't work for me philosophically. The idea that the way we do things is so important that we won't accommodate special requests, no substitutions in any of the cocktails on the menu, uh, no standing room reservations. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things, uh, strict dress codes. There's a lot of sort of coded ways that people create spaces that are designed to feel exclusive. And in, in larger markets and in markets in the, maybe in the Northeast or uh, on the, the, the West Coast like L.A., the, that sort of exclusivity can play to your advantage. The idea that people will be like, ooh, this place must take itself very seriously, therefore it's important. And I don't, I don't want to denigrate that model, and I think that's gotten the bar, the cocktail industry a lot. It's helped grow the reputation of the cocktails as an artistic pursuit even because people are people take it seriously in a way that they hadn't really been seen doing before. But if you take yourself too seriously, you can alienate your crowd. So while I want bartenders that know how to make a, you know, know what is in a 20th century cocktail, for example, it's a relatively obscure classic. I don't want to have to train people up on those things necessarily, but I would rather have somebody who either comes from a bartending background that is a bit more down to earth. I'd rather try to teach someone who's used to working in a dive bar how to make cocktails than try to teach somebody who's only ever worked in a cocktail bar how to talk to average people. Right on, right on. I think uh, when I was managing, which I have recently gotten out of for the, uh, for the in the near uh, past, I guess. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm a bartender again, and it's it feels really good to be a bartender again. <laughs> um, I, if I saw a resume that didn't have any serving experience or any experience outside of a cocktail bar, it was an immediate red flag for me. I mean... You know, people. I, I it was. I had an odd experience uh, um, working at my other job over at Three Muses Maple Street uh, a couple weeks back when I eavesdropping on a conversation about uh, somebody who was a bartender, and they were just talking about like, you know, uh, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. You know, this is what it is, and I showed everybody. Like they they were very very uh, proud of the fact that like you know like somebody told them that they couldn't do this and that they were that they have achieved everything they wanted to and. They'd only been bartending for a year and a half, and it's like, you know, <laughs> good for them. Maybe they have found their passion, but even now, I've been bartending for nearly 15 years at this point, and, uh, you know, I'm, I would never just say, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. You never know. You know, you got to leave yourself open to different possibilities of, you know, of life. When I first came, came down here to New Orleans, you know, I was going to be an engineer. I was going to Tulane University. And, you know, that's, that's was my path for the most part. I was going to make a bunch of money being an engineer because that's what my high school guidance counselors told me. Um, it was far away from North Carolina, which was a, a big plus for me. I just kind of wanted to get away from home. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, it, school didn't really work out too well for me for the most part. I, yeah. Uh, I got bit by the New Orleans bug pretty hard about wanting to go out and meeting people and socializing and drinking and bar culture was definitely a big part of that, even though I was you know, 18 years old when I first came down here. That is not a barrier to entry for bar culture in New Orleans. <laughs> it is not, especially um, with all the really good fake IDs that are coming through nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, but uh, yeah, I uh, I remember my first bartending job in the city was at the Elms Mansion, and um, I don't even remember how I met the people who worked there, but I was like friends of a friends of somebody who helped to manage the place, and they were like, yeah, just tell me you have two years of bartending experience and say you're 21 and you can get a job here, because they just, it was catering under the table, like work, so they just rolled through staff all the time, so uh, I got my tuxedo shirt and a bow tie, and I showed up at that bar, and I... Uh, uh, there was another bartender who was working there, and I think his name was Amos or something like that. And like that, in my head, he was an Amos, uh, <laughs> but he was like you know an older bartender, somebody who'd been doing this for years, a real professional. Um, and I was watching him cutting lemons and limes, and I was trying to imitate what he was doing because I had no idea what I was doing. I was 18 years old and barely not even allowed to drink, hadn't a lot of experience inside of bars. So I was just watching him, and like I was going, moving way too slow for event bartending. You know, the whole thing with event bartending is you need to, you know, set up as quickly as possible. And I just remember he he turned and looked at me at one point and just said, "You don't know what the fuck you're doing." <laughs> <laughs> and I just said, "Please, just help me." And that's was, that's was, that was kind of the start of it for the most part. And he, uh, you know, I didn't work too many days there, uh, but you know, every shift I had, I worked with him. And, uh, you know, he'd show me a little bit more. I was beer and wine guy at first because I couldn't handle anything else. It was like, you're beer and wine guy. And slowly it was like, all right, this is how you count off, like, you know, a pour of alcohol. You know, it's like your your, your one and a half ounce free pour plus, like, tonic, which was, like, high mixology when it comes to, like, weddings and receptions. Um, yeah, and from there I just kind of leveraged it off. Um, I always like to say if you, you want to talk about, like, cocktail experience and not having cocktail experience, my next job after that was the Bubba Gum Shrimp Company, which I worked at for, like, six or seven years and really liked the job. But uh, my first opportunities behind the bar there, I remember I got an order for an old-fashioned, and I had no idea what an old-fashioned was, just no idea whatsoever. So I asked one of the other bartenders, it's like, oh, we muddle a cherry and an orange with that uh, that bottle that's behind the bar that's wrapped in paper. And I was like, oh, bottle wrapped in paper i don't know exactly what that is uh, so I, I go back and i grab the first bottle that was wrapped in paper which was leah perrin's uh, worcestershire sauce <laughs> <laughs> and i made a uh, old-fashioned with uh, worcestershire sauce that did not get sent back i've had lots of drinks sent back in my career but that one and the next two that i made like that did not get sent back so uh, that actually sounds kind of good <laughs> just, well, let's put it on the menu then i guess i don't know well, let's try it first maybe. yeah right <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's kind of how I uh, how I got involved with the scene. Um, I spent many years just working corporate bartending. It was the best education in the industry I ever got. Um, I worked through a management track there, and you know, really learned the back ends and things like that. And you know, I think if you ever want to decide if this is something that you want to do as a profession, you know, dive in there to the back end, learn how to read a P and L, learn what spreadsheeting and like how to do spreadsheets, monthly inventories, and things like that. If that's stuff that just drives you crazy you might want to consider doing something else because it's really at the heart of the matter. Like, you know, it's always fun. To, bartending's fun. I mean, I, I you'd agree with me, right, Cole? I mean, yeah, no, I love what I do. Bartending's a lot of fun, but it's all that back-of-the-house stuff and prep stuff that can be a bit of a grind and doesn't always suit everybody's tastes. Yeah, if you want to move up beyond... I don't want to say just being a bartender like that's some terrible thing to be. You're There's just plenty a of bartender. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty of people I know who have no interest whatsoever in assuming a managerial role, who have no interest whatsoever even in ownership. They just want to pop behind the bar, make some money, make some drinks, have some good times, and then go home and not have to take that work with them. Not deal with spreadsheets, not deal with hiring and training and paying your taxes and all the other things that come with the responsibilities of management and ownership. But if you do want to parlay bartending into something else, into 
career that won't require you to be out until 2 a.m. every day, that won't be as hard on your feet and back. I mean, there's a lot of way. There's a track where you can become involved in the sales side, where you can work as a representative for any number of spirits or wine or beer companies. But if you if that's if you're not interested in just being a salesperson, again, I, I don't want to say just being a salesperson. Like that's also not a just respectable profession. <laughs> yeah. um, then then being involved on the managerial side, and that that also allows you an escape route. If you can, there are a lot of bartending and bar managers. You can get work in in warehouse management, like managing inventories and and purchasing and receiving and just those types of managerial roles that you can have an opportunity to learn because they're so undesirable in the bartending community <laughs> that anyone who has any interest in them is immediately embraced and trained up as quickly as possible to do those things. Those are very, very transferable skills mm -hmm. that can eventually, if you don't want to bartend for the rest of your life, if this is just what you want to do in your 20s, again, nothing wrong with that, that can give you real an, an escape route down the road. Yeah, it's good to have a plan B, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right on. Well, uh, I think that's going to do it for this time. We're right about at the 30-minute mark. Thanks a lot for listening, y'all. Um, love to hear some feedback. Uh, once again, this is T. Cole Newton and Stevie Mata here with Around with Stephen Cole. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back at you soon. Cheers.